0: Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. We've been looking together at the Ten Commandments, and we now turn our attention to the Seventh Commandment. It is a short statement, but as we will see, the implications of the Seventh Commandment reach far beyond what it prohibits. So if you will, look with me at Exodus chapter 20 as I read verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. This is God's Word. As I was studying this week, I was reminded of the 1631 edition of the King James Bible. It became known as the Wicked Bible. And the reason is because of a mistranslation of the Seventh Commandment. The printers, they accidentally left out one word. And so when you turn to Exodus chapter 20, read verse 14 in the Wicked Bible, so-called, it said, Thou shalt commit adultery. If there were some people who got a kick out of it, the printers, they did not, because they were fined 300 pounds, which today would be the equivalent of what one would earn in a lifetime. When we looked at the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, we noted that healthy parent-child relationships stabilize society. Now we turn to consider the marriage relationship. The relationship between husband and wife is the most sacred and important of earthly relationships. Without it, there would be no children. Without children, there would be no parents to honor. Without the family unit, which begins with marriage, the foundations of any society would crumble. Because marriage is the most fundamental of relationships, it must be guarded. And so I want to begin not talking about the negative side of the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, but the positive side of the commandment. That is the reason why adultery is so destructive, not just to marriage, but to society. And that reason is because of what God has designed marriage to be. So first of all, the design of marriage, the design of marriage. Marriage is not man's idea. It was God's. In fact, so vital is marriage to God's plan and purposes that the direct product of marriage, children, is alluded to in the first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, we read in verse 28, on the sixth day of creation, what we read there about male and female is that God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The reason marriage between one man and one woman has been practiced in every society throughout history is because it finds its origin in creation. We read of the first marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And this is where Jesus himself points when he speaks of the sacredness and permanent nature of marriage. In answering a question about divorce in Matthew 19 verses 4 through 5, Jesus replied, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He quotes Genesis 127. Jesus then follows by quoting Genesis 224. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. If Jesus himself goes back to Genesis 1 and 2 to teach about marriage, that's where we should probably head as well. And the first fundamental point is that marriage is between one man and one woman. A man shall be joined to his wife. So this does away with entertaining any notions of polygamy. Though some men did have multiple wives in the Old Testament, that's not how God designed marriage to be from the beginning. And at the outset, this also does away with any ideas of marriage being between two men or two women. We must take our cues from scripture and not from contemporary culture. The second point is this. Marriage is a loving, exclusive, and binding covenant of companionship between one man and one woman. This is what the one flesh union represents. The physical coming together is an expression of the love that alone is unique to marriage. The two become one, not just physically, but in every area, so that the husband now belongs exclusively to his wife and the wife exclusively to the husband. Marriage is binding because in God's original design, he intended for the union to last a lifetime. It is a commitment each spouse makes to the other that allows marriages to endure through the difficult times. Marriage is a covenant because two parties bind themselves together with obligations to one another. That's what a covenant is. And at the heart of marriage is companionship. You walk through life together. Parents, they grow old and they pass away. Children move out. Friends come and go. But your spouse is a constant companion through all of it. And Of course, all of this is what we hear reflected in Christian wedding vows. Hands down, if you ask any pastor who has a few years experience under his belt, he will tell you, the number one issue by far that he has to deal with is issues that pertain to marriage. Marriage and sex are two of God's greatest gifts. Uh, there's no other relationship that compares in joy and intimacy to marriage. There's no experience that compares in joy and intimacy between two married people to sex. Therefore, it makes sense that both marriage and sex will be distorted and exploited and attacked by the adversary. If the devil can derail our thinking and our practice when it comes to sex and marriage, then he will undermine the power of the church and he will sow misery in families. Imagine a three-legged stool. A three-legged stool, if you can picture that. If it's going to work, that is, if you're going to be able to stand on it, all three legs of that stool, they must be intact and strong. There are three legs we need to understand that comprise healthy and strong marriages. The first leg is a biblical understanding of the complementary nature of marriage. Marriage is complementary. In Genesis 2, God brought all the animals to Adam to name them. So listen to Genesis 2, verses 20 through 22, which read, For Adam there was not found a suitable helper for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. None of the animals were deemed adequate helpers for Adam. God already knew this was the case, and Adam discovered it as they were paraded before him. This name-giving was in part so Adam would realize how much Eve would compliment him. Man and woman fit together in a way that nothing else does. For one, they're both made in the image of God, as they reflect God individually, so they also reflect him together. Secondly, neither the man or the woman is complete without one another. And this is by design. Notice what I just read from Genesis 2, that the female is brought into existence through making the male incomplete. The man receives completion when he receives her back to himself. In the same way, she is created separately from the male. She is built separately from her true origin. As one commentator writes, It is in union with the male that she returns to where and what she should be. If you like, she comes home. When a man and woman come together as husband and wife, it is not only a union, but a reunion. The man and woman are literally made for one another, and in a sense, they are incomplete without one another. The second leg of the marriage relationship is an understanding of the expectation God has for marriage. That is children. This is the second leg of that three-legged stool. I read the creation mandate in Genesis 1 earlier. Embedded in it is a command to go and multiply. Listen also to this passage out of Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against you who have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Here we see that one of the purposes of marriage is to produce godly offspring, to produce children. Uh, This is done within the context of a covenant made between a male and a female. And there are two oaths that must happen in order for a marriage to be recognized as legitimate in God's eyes. This is what is taking place during a marriage ceremony. Have you ever wondered what it means to be married, to be Married in God's eyes, where there's two oaths that are taken. The first oath is verbal. This is what occurs when two people promise themselves before witnesses to one another, a verbal oath. These are the vows. The second thing that must happen for a marriage to be legitimate is the ratification oath. And this is the sexual act. The sexual act is obviously private, so this is why the bride and the groom why they kiss one another during the ceremony. The kiss represents The private ratification oath that is to take place after the public verbal oath. It is the coming together sexually that ratifies or seals the covenant. So a marriage requires both the verbal oath and the ratification oath. This is why two committed people living and sleeping together are not married. They are taking part in the physical without the verbal oath. There's no verbal oath to ratify there's no covenant to confirm. From a marriage covenant and the physical oneness that consummates it, there's an expectation for children, for godly offspring, which I read earlier in Malachi 2. Now, some do erroneously teach that the only reason for sex and marriage is for children. But the sexual act is more than for reproduction alone. It is a continual confirmation and a continual strengthening of the covenant between husband and wife. Sex is also an experience intended by God to be enjoyed by a man and a woman within the boundaries of marriage. However, the natural and expected result of physical oneness is offspring. Two lives come together to create new life. Now, I understand that there are circumstances where having children is not realized. Sometimes the couple is older. Sometimes there are medical issues that prevent pregnancy. But when a man and woman are joined physically, it is the kind of union that is meant to produce offspring. This is the intended result. Children, in particular godly children, are crucial to the continuance and flourishing of society. The birth rate in this nation is declining, and that doesn't bode well for the health and sustainability of any society. The third foundation, the third leg of a biblical marriage is how it pictures Christ and the church. Listen to these excerpts from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28-33. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, just as Christ also does the church. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking in reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects the husband. The one flesh union of husband-wife gives us a picture of the spiritual union of Christ. His church.
1: But notice what I just read from
0: Ephesians 5. the marriage is not a man and a woman loving one another very much. It's not simply just a man and a woman in marriage that love each other a lot. What is a picture of Christ and his people is the difference between the God-ordained roles within marriage. The man is called to love and to lead. The woman is called to respect, to follow. The man loves sacrificially, even as Christ laid down his life for the church. The woman willingly submits to her husband, as the church does to its head, Jesus Christ. That's the picture. In spiritually healthy marriages, we get a continual glimpse of Jesus and his people. So we're now in a place, we're now in a place to take the three legs of our stool and understand what makes for a firm place to stand. Marriage is a complementary relationship between husband and wife, the kind of which has the potential to produce children, and all the while demonstrates the mystery of Christ and his church. It is crucial to have this understanding in place as we approach the Seventh Commandment. That's where we're headed with all this, the Seventh Commandment. We see that marriage is not an institution that man is free to define any way he pleases. Marriage is sacred because it was brought into existence by God. It is the relationship in which God intends for a man and a woman to complement one another, to produce offspring that will glorify God, and the only relationship that we specifically glimpse the mystery of Jesus' relationship to his church. This is why adultery is so egregious. It damages that which God desires. So, next, let's consider the betrayal of marriage. The betrayal of marriage. The seventh commandment specifically forbids adultery. Adultery is sexual intercourse between a married person and someone who is not their spouse. Only one party may be married, or both parties involved may be married. Either way, it is adultery. There is a Particular call in radio show several years ago. At the talking point, in and of itself is very telling of our times. The host said across the airwaves, we'd like for any of you out there who have ever committed adultery to call in. Let's discuss the experience on our show today. The host and his guests then waited and they waited some more. The phones did not ring. After a few minutes of this, the host rephrased his question. If any of you out there have had an affair, call in and let's discuss it. And this time, the phone lines lit up. This goes to show that everyone knows how ugly adultery is. Society tries to lessen the severity by calling it an affair. But regardless of what it's called, adultery offends God. It destroys marriages. It breaks up families. And it contributes to the breakdown of human Flourishing. If only the married man who started out with what he thought was innocent flirting with his co-worker could see five years into the future. If only he could see the brokenness and pain and havoc his decision brought not only in his own life, but in his spouse's and his children's, in his extended families, and even in his friends' lives. If only the married woman who started chatting on Facebook with a high school friend could see five years into the future and realize how that set into motion a series of events that brought everything she loved crashing down around her. It should make us shudder to think through the consequences of adultery. Remember the Ashley Madison scandal? Ashley Madison is a website. You can go to it today. Its tagline reads, Life is short, have an affair. The website is for married people looking to commit adultery, or for the unmarried looking to sleep with a married person. It secretly connects people to others interested in an illicit relationship. It secretly does so, that is, until it does not. Back in 2015, the website was hacked and the data was breached. Suddenly, the list of those using the site's services was made public. On that list were names of government officials, members of the military, a few celebrities, and sadly, some who presented a Christian image in public. Of course, all the people using the site wished to remain anonymous, and now they were exposed. Even though we live in an age Even though we live in an age when sexual deviancy is promoted under the guise of sexual freedom, the Ashley Madison user leak proved once again that no matter how you might try to justify adultery, the vast majority of people still feel ashamed when it's exposed. The non-Christian may not understand why adultery is wrong, but the very fact that marriage is sacred is embedded deep in the psyche. In nearly every ancient society, an offended husband, could kill the one who seduced his wife and suffer little or no repercussions. This is because adultery was seen as a crime against property and because the whole structure we call society was built on the family, which begins and is safeguarded by marriage. Of course, the Old Testament does not view wives as property as many ancient cultures did. In fact, the penalty for adultery is severe for both involved parties, not just for the woman. Leviticus 20, verse 10 reads, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. A young, God-fearing man who lived in Egypt 4,000 years ago was elevated from a slave to the position of steward over the house of a prominent and wealthy individual. His master entrusted him with everything, so trustworthy was this young man. Besides the master's house and fields and enterprises, they had never been as prosperous as when this young man took over their management. The only thing the master did not give Joseph access to was his wife. When Potiphar's wife asked Joseph straight up to sleep with her, he refused and he answered, How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Had Joseph given him, yes, it would have been a sin against her marriage, and a sin against her husband, and a sin against society. But what concerned Joseph the most was that adultery is a sin against God. Joseph lived 300 years before the giving of the Ten Commandments, but he knew the violation of the marriage covenant was forbidden by the God he served. First and foremost, adultery is a sin against God. It is ironic that rarely was any sin regarded with as much horror among the Israelites as adultery. Yet it, at the same time, was one of the most common sins. And this hasn't changed today. Jeremiah communicates this message in Jeremiah 29, 21 through 23. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, because they have acted foolishly in Israel and have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives. Ezekiel sixteen thirty eight reads, Thus I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged. Adultery is the sin that the prophets most often compare to idolatry. And here's the reason. God declared himself to be a husband who is married to an unfaithful wife. Whenever Israel worshipped idols, the Lord felt betrayed. The Lord says to the prophet in Jeremiah 5, 7, Why should I pardon you? Your sons have forsaken me and sworn by those who are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the harlot's house. And again, in Jeremiah 3, 6 and 8, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away. It was, of course, on high hills and under green trees that Israel built altars and worshipped idols. The whole book of Hosea is about a prophet who continually receives back an adulterous wife, Gomer. It is a picture of God's faithfulness, even when we love people and things more than we love God. Adultery not only devastates the innocent spouses in a marriage, it's also self-destructive to the ones who commit it. Proverbs 6.32 says, The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it." You see, the destructive power of adultery gives us a glimpse of the destructive power of giving our hearts to anything other than the Lord. The grief and pain of adultery is the grief and pain the Lord feels when we are unfaithful to him. The seventh commandment specifically addresses cheating on your spouse, but its range of application is much wider. A marriage between one man and one woman is the only context in which the Bible views as proper and acceptable for sexual relations to occur. Therefore, any sexual activity outside of marriage is prohibited. Cornea is a Greek word from which we get our English word pornography. Cornea refers to any unlawful sexual activity. It's often translated sexual immorality in the New Testament. In older translations, it was translated fornication. It's a word that covers everything from adultery to prostitution to sex between the unmarried. Sex between the unmarried, by the way, has become so acceptable in our modern Western society that you are viewed as strange if you don't engage in it. I mean, there's a a movie poking fun at purity called The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and it came out Back in 2005, we've come a long way in the wrong direction since then. It's not even expected that you be dating someone in order to have sex with them. What is most surprising, however, is the numbers of people attending church who justify premarital sex. Sleeping with someone you were not married to is a sin. It doesn't matter if you love them. It doesn't matter if you're committed to them. It doesn't matter if you two show up to church together to worship every Sunday. If you're not married to them, you are committing sexual sin. And I feel like I have to say this these days. If you're in this situation, you need to repent. That means stop. Or you are not right with the Lord. If you have a friend in this situation, don't pretend like what they're doing is okay. That does not help them. There is a way that you can lovingly speak truth. Pray about how you're going to do so. They need to be warned. And I must add, if the two of them decide to get married, they must stop sleeping together until the wedding. If not, they are still living in fornication. I'm not saying these things just to talk. This is a very real scenario for many professing Christians today. You will encounter it. Be ready. Don't be afraid of the truth. Love someone enough to tell them. Homosexuality is also forbidden by the Seventh Commandment. Again, the only acceptable sexual activity occurs between a married man and a woman. The Old Testament and the New Testament state that homosexuality is a sin. Now people will argue that when homosexuality is spoken against in the New Testament, it only applies to one-night stands. This is why some churches, so-called, justify same-sex relationships. They say if they are monogamous relationships, They are okay. People will say it's okay if two men or two women are committed to one another. But the New Testament makes no distinction of this kind. Romans 126. God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire for one another. Men with men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Homosexual relations are against God's natural order and it's, it's always a sin, regardless of whether it occurs once or over and over in a committed relationship. Notice also that same-sex activity, as I just read, is an abandonment of the natural function. To avoid being graphic, Let me just say that a light bulb only works screwed into a socket. Two light bulbs together, or two sockets together, they don't produce light. Male and female plugs are different because they have different functions. They are named male and female because of how they function. Everything about homosexuality is outside of the natural function. It is unnatural. It is prohibited by the seventh commandment. The next thing the seventh commandment forbids is viewing pornography. Where do I get this? Well, I get this from Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or man with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. When you are viewing pornography, you are lusting after someone who is not your spouse. It is a sin. Pornography use is rampant in our society. Thirty years ago, you had to drive somewhere, you had to hope that no one saw you, and you had to go into a specific video store to get what you wanted. Now, anyone of any age at any time can access literally any form of sexual activity on their phone. It is not an exaggeration to say pornography is destroying people's lives. When professing Christians are polled, 64% of men and 15% of women say they watched porn in the last month. One in 10 Christian men admit to viewing porn daily. 57% of teens search out a pornography site at least monthly. The first exposure to pornography for men is 12 years old on average. According to the latest statistics in 2021, about 200,000 Americans are addicted to porn, men and women. Studies confirm over and over that pornography acts in the brain exactly like a drug. One needs increasingly aggressive, violent, and deviant material to get the same high. Pornography obviously negatively impacts marriage. 56% of divorces involved one spouse having an an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 70% of wives of sex addicts could be diagnosed with PTSD. Young children who grow up watching porn are less likely to seek out a potential marriage partner. Not only does habitual porn use impair social skills, it also artificially meets sexual needs that were designed to be met only in marriage. People are marrying later. We're not at all. And porn, though not the only reason, is a contributor to this phenomenon. Make no mistake, pornography use is prohibited by the seventh commandment. And we need to make sure as a church that we're clear on that. We also need to realize how emotionally and spiritually destructive pornography is to the individual. You might have dealt with a porn habit yourself. You definitely know people who are dealing with it now, whether you realize it or not. Let's be compassionate, not condemning. Let's keep in mind there is forgiveness and freedom from bondage. It's available when it comes to sexual sin of any kind. Let's also realize that those viewing pornography are in bondage to sin. Next, let's consider the protection of marriage the protection of marriage. How seriously should we take sexual sin? Well, Jesus said this about lust in Matthew five twenty nine: If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. In other words, deal drastically with sexual sin. Take seriously even those lustful thoughts that you allow to linger. Do whatever it takes to cast out the lustful thought before it turns into a sinful action. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee immorality. Flee immorality. I can't help but think that Paul had Joseph in mind when he wrote this. After Potiphar's wife insisted again, That Joseph sleep with her and this time took hold of his clothes. We read this in Genesis 39. Joseph left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. That is how you should handle sexual temptation. Any sexual temptation. Flee from it. Ignore the thought. Close the window in your computer screen. Put the phone down. Look the other direction. Walk away from the compromising situation. Don't flirt with the person who's not your spouse. Whatever it takes. Tear out your eye. Not literally, but definitely flee with the same intensity as it would take to tear out your eye. Are you being tempted right now? You're not alone. God made the sex drive a powerful force. He intends for that drive to be channeled in heterosexual marriage. A flood is destructive, but if that same amount of water is channeled between two riverbanks, it becomes a force for good. I realize, however, the reality that that some people are not married, and for some, this is by choice. For others, the Lord has not allowed marriage to become a reality, at least not yet. There are various reasons. Even for the married, it's not always possible to have sexual relations for various reasons. My point is, we are all tempted to break the seventh commandment, whether single or married. Even if that temptation is to entertain lustful thoughts. That's still a temptation to sin. Listen to James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death you know for sure that if your desire is of a sexual in nature toward anyone but your spouse, that it is not of God. Now, the temptation itself is not a sin. It's what you do with the temptation. When you give it to the thought and you begin to entertain it, then that lust becomes sin. And sin always leads to spiritual loss. If you're a Christian, sinning does not mean that you cease to be a Christian, but it does mean that you grieve the Lord. It means you set yourself up to suffer negative consequences. It means that you stunt your spiritual progress. Death is separation. For the non-Christian, death is eternal separation from the love and the presence of God. For the Christian, death is a loss of closeness, intimacy with the Lord. Sin separates you from God. How do we resist when we are tempted? How do we flee immorality? Well. It does not begin with us. Listen to Hebrews chapter two, verse 17. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things. It begins with Jesus. If we begin our efforts of resistance with ourselves, we will be successful as long as our willpower holds out. But we need more than willpower. We need power outside of ourselves. The Son of God was made like us in all things. This means that as a human being, Jesus was tempted in all areas, just like we are, which includes the area of sexual temptation. He was a healthy man. Jesus knew what it was to be tempted to take the second look, to linger on the thought, but he did not. Temptation never became lust and gave birth to sin in Jesus' life. This is why when Jesus died on the cross, his death was not for his own sins. He had none of those. He died for your sins and for mine. Jesus was judged as an adulterer, so you won't have to be. Because Jesus was made like us in all things, Hebrews 2.17 goes on to read, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation or atonement For the sins of the people. There you go. Because Jesus died a sacrificial death. He himself becoming the lamb. That was slain for the sins of the people. He rose from the dead. To become the high priest. The sacrifice became the interceder. The sacrifice became the one. Who brings us to God. But don't miss this part of Hebrews 2.17. He became a merciful high priest. This means that Jesus understands your temptation. He can relate to your temptation. He has compassion on you when you are tempted. Because of this, verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 2 reads, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who were tempted. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted, whose aid does Jesus come to? To the aid of those who are tempted, that is you, me. And this is how he does so. If you were a Christian, Jesus died in your place, so you will be condemned under the coming wrath of God. Jesus rose so that you pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. Jesus ascended to heaven so you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, as the high priest, prays for you right now. When temptation comes, remember these things. You're forgiven of all your sins, everything. You are alive to God. You possess all the power of God to resist sin, and you are being prayed for right now. In your moment of temptation, by one whose prayers are always answered. Knowing these things to be true, to be absolutely certain, is how you will flee from immorality. Faith in the Christian life is believing what God declared is true. You have all the resources of God to resist sin. Let the love that God showed you at the cross motivate you. Let the life God gave you through the resurrection invigorate you. Let the power God gave you at the ascension strengthen you. Let the prayers of Jesus encourage you. Lay hold of these truths. Believe them. Walk in them. Resist sin. Flee immorality. Jesus will protect our marriages. Jesus will protect our marriages. Jesus will protect our minds. Jesus protect our hearts. Let us trust him to do so. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we are tempted in many ways. And Lord, we confess that we have allowed that temptation to lead us into sin. And Father, we want to be free of any bondage in any area of sexuality, Lord. We just ask that you would help us to remember these truths as we flee immorality. Remembering what you've done For us through the Lord Jesus Christ, remembering the power that is ours through the Holy Spirit, Father, remembering your love, especially in those moments of temptation. We ask for your help in our time of need. We pray this thing in Jesus' name.